ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент притих, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Mass protests in Russia are often thought about, narrated and reported on as if they tell us something about the Putin system, its status and future. But protests occur in Russia all the time. Most of them are small and local and often never get attention from the Moscow or international media. But what do these protests mean for the participants themselves? In what ways does protest act as a means to communicate with the Russian authorities? And what can we learn from their grievances, makeup, and scope? I turn to Misha Gabovitz for some insight. Misha Gabovitz is a member of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam, Germany, and a sociologist and contemporary historian specializing in the study of protest and social movements in Russia, as well as Soviet war memorials. He is the author of Protest in Putin's Russia, published by Polity. Here's Misha Gapovitz. So protests in Russia since the early 2000s have taken many forms and addressed many issues. And protests have also served as key points in the history of Putinism, the anti-modernization protests in 2005 or the mass protests in 2011-2012, and, and the more recent ones that have erupted around corruptions. So I wanted to ask you to start off, uh, why are protests important to understand in Russia? So first of all, there have actually been many more protests than the ones that you outlined. Um, and in fact, there are local and regional protest movements and sectoral protest movements going on almost all the time, including protests that we don't really hear much about and that readers of the Moscow media don't hear much about. But um, to maybe name just a few reasons why they're important. So first of all, we don't actually have that many ways of gauging or understanding what is important to people. Um, the, the usual method that people have tried to employ to understand Russian society, which is the opinion poll or the, the large scale survey, is extremely imperfect for a whole number of reasons. And one of those reasons is that you ask people questions without knowing whether these questions actually matter to them. right? When you have a protest movement, especially a large scale one, that shows you what people feel strongly about, right? So that's that's one reason. Another reason is that the protest doesn't just stand for something. It's an important event in and of itself. And very often participating in a protest event shapes people. And in fact, the experience of having been a protester often is much more important on a personal level than the question of whether they actually achieved something tangible with that specific protest. Right, right. Yeah, talk about this a, a bit more because um, this, I think you're, you're absolutely right. This is the affective aspect of being in a protest is really important. I mean, I know uh, having participated in protests for a long time, the feeling I get of just being around like-minded people gives me a lot of personal strength. Right. And also, too, going to a lot of protests after a while, it, it ended up giving me a lot of despair because then it became kind of a rote practice. So talk about the importance of this kind of collective affective aspect. So what you just said sounds exactly like uh, what a lot of the, the protesters that I interviewed in Russia, but also a lot of protesters in other countries will typically tell you. Um, but it's also what, for example, social psychologists will tell you. Right. So. Um, we had a dominant view in the early 20th century that 
when somebody is in a crowd, that actually makes them less of an individual, right? They become kind of overwhelmed by the crowd and lose their individuality. What we see now, based on more recent research, is that very often participating in a mass event actually gives people the feeling that their agency is being enhanced. They can do more than they would otherwise be able to do. So it's not just an effective, not just an emotional point, right? Uh, the, the effect is not just on an emotional level, but you're right, you know, um, being with others who you think share your feelings and your views on things it gives you a very kind of powerful emotional boost. But it also has cognitive functions. So, for example, a lot of the people that I interviewed at um, the protests in, in 2012 um, told me that going to protests allowed them to gain a deeper understanding of society because, you know, simply by watching TV and reading the kind of state media or even oppositional media, they didn't really get uh, a clear kind of in-depth image of what was going on in society. Whereas when they finally got a chance to go to one of these places that were very heavily policed from the outside, but felt like spaces of freedom on the inside, that gave them not just an emotional boost, but also a cognitive boost. And that's very interesting because it, it kind of chimes with what uh, specialists in the study of emotions will tell you. So the, the most recent research on the sociology of emotions, the history of emotions, but also the kind of neurocognitive aspects of emotions, tells us that there's no really clear dividing line between emotions and cognition. Right? So the two are very kind of closely related. But the other thing that you said, um, which is that after a while protest becomes kind of a rote experience and people get very tired of it, is of course also true. And that explains a lot about the kind of the ebb and flow and, you know, the, the sort of the swelling and, and um, fall of protest waves, which is why protests and social movements are very often described in terms of waves. You have a really interesting, and you're trying to, I think, challenge and at least look at critically a lot of the ways protests have been understood and narrated and analyzed in Russia. And you state that you want to open up the black box of protest. So what is this black box? So the, the idea is very simple. Um, a lot of people who say that they study protest are not actually interested in protest as such. They're trying to use protest to study something else, right? They try to use it as an indicator of something, um, whether it be, you know, the potential for political change, the relative strength of the opposition versus the regime, or I don't know, the strength of certain popular moods or the kind of changing class composition of society, the rise of the middle class, etc. So they use protest basically as a dependent variable that stands for something, which means that protest, the protest events themselves are very often treated as black boxes, right? You, you use them to extract a certain number of variables, like, you know, you try to count the number of protesters or you try to sort of gauge the number of middle class protesters. Um, in the crowd or, you know, something along those lines. But you're not really interested in protest itself because somehow it's considered secondary, right? Now, being a historian by, by original training, I'm very much interested in, you know, one-off events, protest as events. And interestingly, social movement studies recently has also moved towards looking at the eventful nature of protest, right? Being interested in not, you know, protest as indicative of something, but the, the protest events themselves and what they do to people. And we now have the tools to study what happens at the protest events themselves 
in much greater detail than we used to. So the way that people used to study large-scale protest waves essentially was by taking second-hand sources, such as newspaper reports, and doing some sort of quantitative analysis, right? I'm simplifying a lot, um, but, you know, that's, that's one of the, the main kind of directions of, of study traditionally. What we can do now, because so many protest participants have become citizen bloggers and citizen reporters, is we can actually find an enormous treasure trove of first-hand material that's produced at the protests themselves and that reflects the way that protesters see themselves and other protesters. So what I did for this book is that with the help of uh, a few colleagues, I built a database that was entirely composed of images from every single protest event in the big protest wave between 2011 and 2013 in Russia. Uh, every single photo that documented a protest slogan. And while some of these photos were taken from media outlets, online newspapers, etc., many of them were taken from blogs and contactive profiles of people who actually participated in the protest themselves. So they, they represent a much greater variety and they stay closer to the ground to the actual experience of being at the protest than the secondhand sources that we have. And what this allowed me to do was, for example, to get an idea of the, the diversity of people and the diversity of um, you know, issues, uh, of concerns that's represented at any single protest, and you know, look at internal conflict instead of just treating one protest event as one black box that I have to somehow fit into my my data set right and that gave me really interesting results so um, we found cases uh, for example where different opposition groups had agreed to organize a joint protest event and then when they told regular participants that they wanted to just merge their events there was basically uh, you know a, a protest against the protesters uh, where you know some of the the participants said no we you know we don't really want to be together with the communists or the liberals or whatever. We want to stay at our own event. Um, and that's something that you can only find out about from reports by the participants themselves. And the other thing is that looking at the protests in, in much greater detail, uh, you can also find out a lot about how protest changes people, but also about the internal hierarchy at the protest. So, for example, I spent a lot of time looking at the way that photos were framed and the way that they were produced and which photos were then selected for publication. And you could see that you know, people who were most original in terms of you know, puns and word games and things like that and their slogans featured much more prominently. But those were usually people who just you know, proposed a clever variation on some well-known slogan against voter fraud, something like that. Whereas, you know, elder, elderly people with, you know, a long poem or a long, you know, written statement about some very specific problem in the vast majority of cases wouldn't even make it into the, the published kind of lineup of photos. And that tells you a lot about the way that protest is framed by the protesters themselves, but then also in the media and in the kinds of sources that you know political scientists and also my fellow sociologists will will likely use so i think it's very important in addition to treating protests as you know links in the sort of large chain of political events also to look at the the micro level of protests and to look to think about 
what it means for how people relate to each other and how they communicate with each other, how that's changed by political events, but also how it's changed by technology. Yeah, it seems that you're trying to get a, get through the, the problem that many historians have, and that is how do you get at the voices of the subaltern, right? How do you get at the, the point in which the subjects you're dealing with are representing themselves? Um, so what is what do you see as the value, ultimately, of trying to understand the multiplicity of these subjectivities um, and expressions, and and how can you how do we take those multiplicities and try to coalesce them into some sort of collective expression or action? So that's that's actually a problem for the protesters themselves because during the the 2012 protest wave in particular, there were a lot of different concerns that that conflicted um, at the protests and which, in addition to you know obviously state repression. Uh, I think contributed to the ultimate demise of the protest wave because they couldn't really agree on what kinds of concerns were legitimate and who would be able to express them. Um, so, you know, to give you an example, um, very often political activists, opposition figures uh, in Moscow but also elsewhere will tell you that the only thing that ultimately matters is uh, getting rid of the regime, getting rid of Putin, you know, changing the whole system, and then after that we can deal with all the specific and individual problems that people have locally. Whereas uh, a lot of local protesters, especially outside of Moscow, will tell you, no, no, what we really care about is our specific forest, our specific building that's being destroyed, or our, you know, specific issue of infill construction where somebody is trying to build a whole new building into our courtyard and you know destroy our playground, etc. And these are the things that we want to remedy, and that's why we go to the larger protests. So we use them as a stage on which to talk about the specific issues that we care about. And both sides will typically accuse the others of not being authentic and not really understanding what protest ultimately is really about. So the problem in a lot of research on these issues is that people have tended to take one of these sides, right? So once again, I'm simplifying a little bit, but political scientists typically have tended to side with the opposition and basically say that what we need is a strong opposition movement representing a strong civil society, which ultimately will create, you know, a sort of generic liberal democratic system. Um, and then, you know, once we have that system, we can deal with all the, the sort of pork barrel issues uh, that otherwise can only be expressed within an, a framework of kind of, you know, individual one-off patron-client uh, grievances, right? Whereas uh, qualitative sociologists who study specific movements on the ground have a tendency to side with the, the people that they study, uh, who, you know, are typically concerned with one particular issue and will say that, well, you know, these political activists from Moscow, they come to our town, they promise us all sorts of things. They tell us that, you know, if we support them, they will ultimately help us solve our issue. And then they disappear and we never hear from them again. Right. So essentially to us, they're no different from Putin. Right. And what we think is that the only uh, kind of real political issue is the, the specific issue that we're concerned with locally. And they will also typically tell you we're not a political movement. Right? It's very important in Russia to constantly repeat that you're not political, because otherwise you might get into all sorts of trouble, but also otherwise your fellow protesters might see you as illegitimate, because they will think that you have some sort of political agenda instead of being worried about the very specific thing that they care about. Right? So I think it's very important to 
take both sides of this debate seriously, not to dismiss one of them, and to have some sort of framework for studying protest that allows us to look at the dynamic between these, these different ways of protest. But let, let's talk a bit about the issue of civil society, because it is a mainstay in a lot of analytical discourse of Russia, and it tends to be put in a, a kind of teleology that if there is a civil society, then they'll, they'll, Russia will turn into a liberal democracy. And there is a lot of understanding of protests, as you said, in terms of the term, the concept civil society. So how do you understand the issue of civil society as a concept in Russia? So I think that civil society is is um, a problematic term. Um, it's very normative, and it's rooted, of course, in a long history of political philosophers trying to understand West European societies, which is which is where it emerged. I'm not going to list all the different philosophers who contributed to to defining the term, um, but the fact is that it's very much a concept that arose out of political struggles. Um, to create some sort of independent public sphere that would be separate from the state, from business interests, but also from the private sphere, right? And in that sense, it is uh, a great achievement and a concept that, um, you know, has a lot of value in, in normative political theory. But a lot of problems arise once we try to apply that concept to other geographical contexts, right? Contexts that are in crucial ways different from Western Europe, and Russia is only one of many examples, where historically the development has been different. So having said that, of course, the concept of civil society has gained some traction in Russia itself. And when you talk to a lot of NGO activists, for example, a lot of, a lot of you know, human rights uh, defenders and people like that, they will very happily uh, apply that concept. But once you start looking in detail specifically at how associations work, how protest works in Russia, you will see that there are many important things that the concept of civil society fails to capture. So usually what we understand by civil society is essentially individuals banding together, coming together in some sort of joint common public sphere, where to a degree they have to abandon what makes them individual persons, right? So what, what makes them you know, specific persons with their individual interests, private lives, etc., etc., because the whole idea of a public sphere and of civil society is that you kind of leave all that behind when you try to agree on some sort of you know, common platform, when you try to defend your private interests against the state. Right? What we can observe in Russia is that very often people refuse to do that. Right? They want to come together in an association or in a social movement and keep a lot of what makes them individual persons, right? Their friendships, their, I don't know, their attachment to a specific forest or a specific building, etc. So a lot of people have studied that end up saying, well, you know, that's impure or imperfect civil society. And, you know, Russia uh, has kind of an undeveloped civil society because they mix friendship with, uh, you know, civil society engagement in associations, etc. Um, but if you try not to approach it in this normative way, I would argue that you'll find a lot of interesting kind of constellations where people can still engage in collective action, but just not in the ways that the, the, the notion of civil society would lead us to expect. Well, um, take you know an example. So I did for my book, I, I studied um, uh, a few social movements in Chelyabinsk, which is a big industrial city in the southern Urals. And they're, you know, very kind of 
small, uh, happening on a modest scale compared to what you get in, in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg. Um, but they're usually linked to specific sites, right? specific objects or places, such as the forest. In Chelyabinsk, they have this, um, this piece of ancient forest that now sits uh, essentially right inside the city and is a very important recreational area, but also has a lot of symbolic value. And when that was threatened a few years ago, when um, the, the mayor and the governor were planning to build a, a highway uh, along sort of between that forest and uh, a big lake, right, um, a small movement coalesced of people who had all sorts of different attachments to that forest. So uh, foresters were part of that movement, people who had worked there for a long time and who had grown attached to the forest in a kind of a professional, ecological way. Also, people who used it for, you know, purely recreational purposes, um, people who would just, you know, go there for a stroll, people who saw it as just a symbol of their city. So the, the, the reasons why they cared for this forest were very important, and they expressed these reasons all the time when they were defending it, kind of resisting the temptation to make it simply, you know, an instance of and the problem of environmental destruction or what corruption does to the environment, etc. So, you know, they didn't immediately go to this kind of higher level of argument that you would expect from civil society type engagement. So when you talk about civil society, usually you expect, you know, a very sort of general type of argument that relates your own specific issue with some very universal norm that people everywhere can relate to. Whereas, you know, in cases like this, this forest or a different example in Chilevinsk was an organ hall that people were trying to save because, you know, there was a whole story of, um, once again, the, the authorities trying to move the organ from that building to a different building and return that building to the church because it, it, you know, it had been a church originally. So, you know, once again, you get coalitions, very small coalitions of people who have all sorts of different attachments. And very often when people come in from places like Moscow and say, well, that's exactly the kind of problem that we have, let's say, with the Himki forest near Moscow or with, you know, some other instance of environmental destruction or destruction of architectural heritage, people are extremely wary of them on the ground and say, well, you know, um, maybe, but that's not what our problem is about. Now, coming from a kind of, you know, Western civil society, public sphere type of view, um, the, the, you would usually automatically dismiss that as a kind of, you know, not in my backyard style protest. But I think it's actually much more. And the more you study individual instances of protest in Russia, but also in many other countries, uh, the more you see that there are other ways in which people can come together um, other than what we sort of traditionally understand by civil society. And I think there are lessons to be learned from this that go well beyond Russia. If we look at the rise of populism in a lot of countries in the world in recent years, we see that the way that populism has managed to mobilize people very often follows a very similar pattern, right? The, the successful populists, Trump is a good example, take things that people are very attached to in their own, you know, everyday lives and then kind of try to, to glue their own larger political agenda onto that. Yeah, exactly. Translate them into, into something more general, which only works because they're very good at detecting the things that really do matter to people. So I think that in order to understand these different social movements, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to be agnostic as to um, whether a social movement has to be a good thing or a bad thing, right? Nationalists have their own social movements too. 
um, if we try to, to, to really understand the more recent social movements that we're seeing all over the world, I think we have to pay attention to these things that I call sites of practice. This comes into another issue that you raise, and that is the the many forms of political communication with Russia's or within Russia's power vertical. Uh, because, you know, we tend to think of, and, and this is, I think, something you're, you're telling us to be cautioned, to have caution about it. And that is, we tend to think of protests in the capital P, right? Attaching to the, a large concept that will result into some capital C change. But you, you're getting us to think about protests in a very, in a more localized sense and how that communicates local issues that are attached to people's daily lives. And as you point out, there are many forms of political communication in Russia, whether they'd be, you know, public chamber or various state connected organizations like trade unions, um, artists, um, unions, et cetera. So where does, and also the, the big one being, um, Putin's yearly call-in show where he ex exercises his or tries to exercise his manual control. So where does protest fit in this array of forms of political communication under Putin? So, um, the example that you mentioned with Putin's direct line is, is actually very important. Um, because different political actors in Russia have offered different grammars for people to use to communicate their concerns, whatever those concerns might be. Right? So the one of the main developments under Putin has been a sort of typical authoritarian move to eliminate intermediate institutions, right? Um, that's a classic, right? It, you, you no longer talk through parliament or through, I don't know, um, municipal self-government, which never really took off. Um, you basically talk directly to the president, right? In the hope that your specific local concern will be heard. He will tell the, the evil bureaucrats to, I don't know, fix your, your apartment or whatever it is that um, you're concerned about. And if you don't get the president's ear, then tough luck, right? And this has actually been a very powerful grammar of political communication. Uh, and I think it's, it's often too easily dismissed. But if you look on the ground at how people get things done, you see that you know a lot of people are very happy to use that mode of communication and to you know achieve results. So um, more recently, I've been looking at memorials, uh, war memorials, and the the way that they are built both in the Soviet period and now. And you see that very often when you have a local enthusiast who really wants a memorial built in I don't know his village uh, to commemorate some you know specific massacre or some specific event, that person will just write letters to the governor, write a letter to Putin, etc., and, you know, keep at it until until they get a result that's then portrayed as kind of legitimate um, because it's been sanctified by, by the authorities. And, you know, if you're persistent enough, you can actually get that result. You will have to compromise. You will have to um, basically, you know, uh, tell people that, um, it was the, the authority's idea, right? Uh, it's very important to invite the right people, you know, invite, I don't know, the, the right politicians and priests to, to kind of inaugurate um, your thing. But, you know, in the end, uh, you have some chance of, of getting the thing done. But, of course, you have no guarantee, right? Because if you're unlucky, um, then, you know, you will never get a response or you will only get um, kind of, you know, absurd or, or meaningless responses, right? So that's one mode of communication. Then there's the mode that's offered by the liberal grammar, which is essentially, you know, individuals 
once again coming together in the public sphere and sort of voicing their individual concerns. And there was a very powerful illustration of that during the 2012 protest wave when uh, something called the the council, uh, the coordinating council of the opposition uh, was being elected and one of the, the people who engineered that election um, produced a, a spot uh, that kind of circulated online encouraging people to vote, which was basically a series of individual people stepping out from a blurry background into, uh, onto, you know, a stage and um, holding up some sort of sign saying, you know, I feel this, I feel that, I want this, I want that, suggesting that essentially society is an atomized collection of individuals who come together every once in a while to sort of negotiate what is important to them, right? It, be it in elections or in, you know, some sort of public debate, etc. And that's also a very powerful model that's very familiar to us from the way that politics is structured in, you know, a lot of countries, especially Western countries. But then, you know, there's also um, what one could call the grammar of, of sites of practice or grammar of commonplaces, where the way people communicate is by identifying certain things or certain places that are already important to them, but for different reasons. And then coming together around a shared relationship with these places, like the examples that I mentioned of, you know, the forest or the organ hall or the historic building that's being threatened, etc., where it no longer matters that you could, you might all be able to sign the same manifesto or the same proposition or the same open letter. But what matters, first of all, is that you can all agree that you have a strong emotional attachment to a thing, right? And that, I would argue, is is a grammar of coming together that has played a very important role in, in Russia. And if you look in, you know, in depth at the way that you know, protest scenes emerge in the Russian context, you will find that very often it's all about you know, friendship, about close ties, about attachments to these common places. And that's something that I think has been um, more or less ignored in a lot of research on Russia. Let's talk about this relation. You've mentioned this uh, several times already, and that is the relationship between you know, the individuals that we outside of Russia and the press and even, you know, analysts, you know, we, we look for leaders or important individuals or figures, people like Alexei Navalny, or we tend to identify um, political activity that's outside of, say, the general Russian political machine as the opposition. Um, and and, you've, and you, you pointed to the fact that there is a lot of tension by looking at how people express themselves in protests, the various practices and what they get out of protests. There's a lot of tension between the, the grassroots and these kind of larger figures that we identify. So how do you understand these various different forces and how do they work and clash together within a protest mobilization or a movement? So opposition is another one of these really problematic terms that need to be unpacked. One of the most popular protest slogans in 2012 was, I am not the opposition, right? And a lot of people at the, the protest events um, would tell us, you know, my colleagues and me, when we interviewed them, that it's very important for them that they're protesters but not oppositionists. So I think there's a very powerful frame that's very often applied to these things, which is that anybody who protests automatically is a member of the opposition. And then, um, you know, by virtue of that, anyone who's an opposition leader basically has the right to speak for the protesters and gets to define what the protest is about. And the tensions that that creates where 
especially visible in, in between 2011 and 2013, because the protests, of course, had not been prepared or organized by organized opposition groups. They arose spontaneously, and then these opposition figures, um, you know, very quickly kind of joined them, went up on stage, and because they were well known, many of them, um, basically started speaking as leaders of the protest wave. But that's something that a lot of regular protest participants objected to, right? But, but at the same time, it's what ended up in the media, right? So the media usually wouldn't be able to report on what individual protesters thought or felt or their motivations for, for coming there, or even the fact that many of them would join for a march, but then leave before all the speeches began, before all the opposition figures started talking. I, I was usually one of those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, there were, there were many, of, of, uh, many people like you. Um, so, you know, the, the only voice that we hear is the voice of the opposition. So we tend to assume that everybody who's there is the opposition. And what we saw in 2012 was that a lot of people kind of refused that label. And, you know, refusing the label can be very problematic because it means uh, that, you know, anyone who thinks of themselves as part of the opposition or as, you know, a, a political activist can get into trouble. And it's one of the reasons why people are so wary of that label. But there are also other labels, uh, other, other reasons why, um, people don't want that. So I think that it's it's really valuable analytically in the Russian context to distinguish between opposition and protest. There is a, an, a very interesting opposition scene, right? There's the so-called um, legal opposition, right? Or the systemic opposition, which is more or less, you know, represented in parliament and has legal parties, etc. There's the extra systemic street level opposition uh, associated with people like Navalny and uh, groups like Solidarność, but then there are all sorts of people who will be very happy to protest, but who think of themselves as not being part of the opposition because they think that being part of the opposition is, um, you know, joining a sort of political game that they want no part of. And it's also important to understand that a lot of these people, especially in 2012, perhaps less so now with the most recent protest wave, are, you know, just as wary of Navalny or at the time Nimtsov or, people, or Yashin or people like that, um, as they are of Putin. So not everyone who joins a protest where, you know, Navalny goes up on stage is automatically a Navalny supporter. But that's, you know, an obvious fact that very often gets lost, not just in reporting, but also in, you know, quite a, a lot of the social science writing uh, about protests. So I think it's, it's a very important thing to keep in mind. Now, for people who know very little about protests in Russia, they've probably heard of Pussy Riot. Um, and, and you have a very interesting discussion of Pussy Riot. And, and so how do you understand the Pussy Riot affair and its place in this protest wave in Russia more broadly? So that's actually quite a complex story. I would say, um, first of all, that Pussy Riot was uh, something that a lot of different people projected their own preconceptions of protest onto. Right. So um, from the point of view of you know, the authorities or a large part of the Orthodox Church, um, they were sort of, you know, a small part of a small minority of westernized liberals um, that could be used to basically discredit a lot of the other protesters because, um, you know, supposedly uh, it was, you know, their, their um, punk prayer in the Cathedral of Christ the Savior was sort of scandalous and an insult, uh, etc. And, you know, by portraying that as an insult, you could also um, kind of uh, 
cast aspersions on on everyone else who was in the protest, but who wasn't necessarily Pussy Riot supporter. Uh, on the other side, among the protesters and among pro opposition activists, there were also a lot of people who thought that you know they were uh, marginal, they were provocateurs, they had nothing to do with the with the protest movement itself. Uh, and at the same time, in the West, a lot of people who didn't really grasp that there was a big protest movement going on in Russia. Um, didn't see, you know, anything else and only saw Pussy Riot and saw it as kind of, you know, a recognizable uh, protest event that they could relate to because it kind of ticked all the boxes. Um, but what I find interesting in terms of the background of uh, the, the Pussy Riot affair is that it represents a certain kind of convergence between different kinds of protests and different kinds of protest scenes. So what we had in the 90s and the 2000s was that we had uh, different pockets of political and artistic protest going on in Russia, which um, hardly, if ever, intersected. Right? So you had, I don't know, um, the communist and nationalist protesters against Yeltsin, you had the human rights protesters against the, uh, the Chechen war, um, there was the National Bolshevik Party, which was actually um, surprisingly quite, quite important in the 1990s um, in terms of trying to bridge different kinds of activism, uh, you know, kind of ironic artistic activism with uh, with more political styles of activism. And that then became almost a template for what started happening in the 2000s when, you know, artistic kind of performance artists who previously had mostly addressed the, the, the artistic scene, right, so who had staged performances that outwardly might have looked like protests, but were essentially addressed to their own fellow artists, right, they started joining uh, the larger protest scene that was composed of, you know, street-level political protesters, of nationalists, liberals, uh, human rights activists, what have you, and there were all sorts of interesting coalitions, usually short-lived coalitions between them, but also a kind of, you know, a dialectic of, of mutual learning, so that street-level protest sta protesters started learning from the artists because they found that once they were denied access to the media and to political institutions, they had to engage in much more you know, flashy artistic forms of protest in order to get noticed. And they could learn those forms of protest from, from the artists. And at the same time, a certain segment of the contemporary art scene also became much more directly politicized than it had been. And I think the Pussy Riot is you know, one example among several of that kind of convergence, where all of a sudden you have this large protest movement where everybody is kind of getting to know each other and getting acquainted with each other. Um, so there's a common stage on which all these different types of protests suddenly appear together. And that leads to you know, a kind of splash of, of very strong emotions because people are confronted with uh, protest styles that they weren't really familiar with before. Let's talk about the international context because the Russian protests in 2011, 2002, 2013 are part of a, a global process of protest that I, that I would say really starts in the mid-2000s if you include the, the colored revolutions into the Arab, Arab Spring, into Russia, and then culminating with Ukraine. But one could even say include the anti-austerity protests and political movements in Greece and in Spain and other parts of Western Europe, Occupy Wall Street, etc. So how do you how do you place the protests wave in Russia within that larger context, global context? Yeah, so that was one of the questions that I was really interested in when I was researching and then writing my book. Um, because of course there was, as you say, this massive kind of coincidence with all sorts of very different 
protests happening in different countries more or less at the same time. Um, but what I found was that, in fact, um, there was very little evidence that I was able to detect that any of these other protests had a direct impact on what was happening in Russia. So um, in assembling my database of, of protest slogans, for example, um, I was looking specifically for um, references to other countries or attempts to you know, communicate in English for a global audience or things like that, or you know, um, references to having learned protest tactics from other countries. And there was actually a surprisingly small amount of that uh, in 2012. I think that, that changed later uh, to a certain degree. But what's interesting is that even though the authorities, um, one of the authorities' main arguments at the time was that, well, you know, you're, you're um, in the pockets of the State Department, um, you're just kind of um, following the playbook of, of international anti-Russian movements that try to use peaceful, nonviolent protests in order to um, kind of uh, make their model of democracy dominate worldwide. I didn't really find a lot of evidence of that, right? So in fact, um, there were very, very few figures in Russian protest uh, who had really had uh, substantive experience of you know, participating in protests in other countries and then kind of bringing those techniques um, back to Russia. The, you know, there are a few examples uh, like that, but fewer than one might expect and fewer than um, also one would find in other countries. So I think that um, you know, even though the, the protest wave in Russia happened more or less at the same time as um, the Arab Spring, etc., um, what's, what's striking to me is how different it was. So take the issue of capitalism and social justice, right? So in the Russian protests in, in May 2012 in particular, there was a small wave of um, what people called Occupy camps, right? So the one in Moscow was, um, was kind of heavily reported on, but there were also smaller clones in uh, lots of other places around, uh, around Russia. So in Chelyabinsk, for example, for a whole month, people had not a permanent protest camp, but they would meet um, every single evening in, in a central square and kind of, you know, discuss politics and discuss the, the protest events, etc. Um, but there was hardly any talk of the kind of, you know, social justice, we are the 99%, that you found at, protest, at Occupy protest camps, not just in the United States, but the world over. Right. So interestingly enough, you know, in, in Russia, the kind of former um, home of socialism, um, you had Occupy protests that didn't even mention capitalism and social justice. Right. So it was really, really different, um, I would argue, from that, but also from the, the earlier wave of colored revolutions, because the, the so-called you know, colored revolutions or colored protests had mostly been about, you know, a specific opposition movement. Um, being denied, you know, victory in in an election, whereas here it was much less about specific opposition movements and much more about the general issue of fair elections and uh, and the experience of election observers. Now, we, recently we've been uh, witnessing after a, a couple of year ebb of at least very large protests. Protests, as you say, are going on all the time. Particularly, I mean, I've paid a lot of attention to labor protests, which seem to be increasing in the last couple of years. Um, but at least the protests that are getting a lot of attention, there there is a new kind of wave or flow of protests, particularly around corruption we've seen in the last couple of months. And um, people inside and outside Russia are, are pointing to the to the presence of Russian youth. Um, so so what, what do you make of this presence of, of, of youth and the efforts to see them as 
agents of political change? So first of all, I would I would agree that it is a real phenomenon. Um, to be honest, I was initially very skeptical um, when all this talk about young people joining the protest started, because I remembered what happened in December 2011, when you know before the protests had even really got going, everybody started talking about the middle class, right? Um, saying this is a middle class protest, and then you know once. Um, one went to the protests and, and interviewed people, um, one would get the sense that, you know, this middle class label doesn't really work. It's not, you know, people don't identify with it. And it's kind of a narrative that was almost prefabricated and then just applied to, to a protest wave. So I don't think it was a very useful frame. And my initial impression was that when people now started talking about young people protesting, um, that might be a similar kind of media hype. Now, um, literally just today, I looked through a new collection um, that uh, my colleagues assembled of uh, protest slogans and photos in particular from all over Russia from March this year, right? So, you know, about a uh, hundred uh, cities in Russia, uh, big and small, uh, and, you know, photos of all the protest events where you can get a, a relatively good idea of who participated. And I have to admit that it is true um, that you see young people everywhere. Not exclusively young people, um, but certainly uh, I can't remember a single place, um, maybe with one or two exceptions, where there weren't also people in their teens and 20s present among protesters. So I do think that that's a novel phenomenon and a very interesting one. Um, and I think that it has to do, and here I'm, I'm really speculating, I think it has to do with uh, the fact that uh, Navalny and his team have been extremely successful at mobilizing young people who are internet savvy, who get a lot of their information from the internet and who hadn't really been mobilized uh, for the most part by all the other local protest movements that have already been going on, right? So you rightly mentioned labor protest. I would add a lot of uh, new environmental movements, including you know movements that have been going strong for two, three, four years in places like, um, I don't know, the Volgograd region, Chilevinsk, et cetera. Um, but you know, apparently there is a whole cohort of young people who didn't really care about these local issues that much, um, but were really kind of mobilized into action by Navalny. So I think that, you know, to the difference of 2012, when um, Navalny, in a sense, was a latecomer to the protest movement, here it would be legitimate to say that he has really managed to mobilize a lot of people who hadn't previously been part of the protest. What that will lead to, uh, God only knows. Let me ask you about the issue of class, because as you said, you know, immediately one of the, the labels put on the 2011 protest was the middle class, and then that kind of got morphed into the creative class. And then now another kind of attempt to do a class formation of sorts is with youth. But so in your observations of protests in Russia, how do you understand the class component, not only as a representation of the protests, but also the types of grievances that people have? So I think that um, there are two things that we need to think about. One is whether protesters represent a cross-section of the population. And of course, they never do, right? If you look at different kinds of protests, it's very easy to see that, um, you know, people of um, a certain level of education, uh, income, etc., will join a certain kind of protests, uh, you know, with greater likelihood than another kind of protest, right? So you, you find different people at labor protests than at anti-corruption protests. Now, from there, 
to saying that a protest is middle class because it doesn't represent, I don't know, the workers, for example, is a big leap. And I think um, we really have to take people seriously in the way that they see themselves. So if people tell you at a protest that they don't really see themselves as middle class, and that's not why they're out there, um, I think one has to be careful about you know being suspicious of them and saying, well, you know, um, that's all just kind of false consciousness, and really this is about middle class interest. And it's interesting that if you start looking um, in detail at the arguments of people to say you know, such and such protest is a middle class protest, it, it very quickly gets very tortured, right? So they will use you know complicated constructions saying, well, you know, the core of the protesters is a middle class or the way that they're being presented on TV is, is as middle class protest. So they will very quickly slip from a very kind of um, rigorous definition of what a middle class might, you know, what might constitute a middle class based on, you know, classically the relationship to the means of production, uh, etc., to, you know, some sort of complex uh, kind of conglomerate of, of variables, um, which I think very often is misleading. So I think it's, it's more interesting to look at the actual relationships between people at a protest event and also at the inequalities at a protest event, right? Uh, such as the ones that I mentioned in terms of who actually gets represented in the media and who doesn't. Um, instead of trying to see everything through, you know, a very kind of rigid division between, you know, an upper class, lower class, etc. Now, if we look at, at um, once again, the 2012 protests, what we see is that, uh, you know, a lot of the people who, who were out there, um, I think could be more easily classified using the traditional Russian notion of intelligentsia, right? Um, instead of trying to press them in a middle class notion. I think the, the whole middle class framework had a lot to do with trying, you know, before even really doing the empirical work, trying to press the Russian case into kind of a globally understandable model, where the, the hypothesis, the assumption was that what we're seeing now from Tunisia to China to Russia is that, you know, autocrats have created conditions of stability, which have given rise to a new middle class, which is now demanding more political participation. Right? And that was a kind of ready-made model that was already at hand before the protests even started. And then it was assumed that that's what the Russian protests were about. And I don't think they were. Now, um, with young people, in a sense, the issue is more clear-cut because that's you know really a kind of a cohort designation rather than a designation of a certain class. And once again, it's clear that we're not seeing a representative cross-section of young Russians at the protests. But the very fact that over the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, we have gone from protests that were overwhelmingly um, old people, right? The anti-monetization protests, uh, a lot of the kind of uh, nostalgic anti-Yeltsin pro-communist protests of the 1990s, to protests where you have a very sizable component of young people at the very least, um, is, you know, a very interesting fact. But, you know, once again, um, whether this will change something in the long run, I would be able to tell. Now, in your effort to understand protests from below and how the, the participants, what their expressions are, what are their concerns, what are their voices, and and given, and this is my last question, and given the fact that, you know, we do have a Russian presidential election in 2018, and, and these moments of president of elections in Russia tend to be crisis points for the political system. Um and, and it certainly, I think, will be another moment in which the 
opposition, and here I mean the capital O, will try to you know exercise some some weight in the process, and and I think the regime and will certainly be ready for a clash. So, based on your understanding of these protests over the last couple of years, how do you see things perhaps moving forward? I have no idea. <laughs> I know it's an awful question, but I'm always curious. <laughs> Look, I think that as a historian or a sociologist, understanding past events is difficult enough. Um, making predictions is is extremely dangerous, especially when you're using your kind of social science clout to you know predict something that you don't really have evidence for. Right. Let me let me let me reframe the question in a different way then. Based on the, the the expressions that you are seeing come out of protests, you know, not just the the corruption protests we've seen in the last couple several months, but also the very many smaller protests, what kind of things are concern do are on the minds? What kind of political issues concern uh Russian participants in protests? So what I can what I can try to say um, a little bit about is the structural conditions for future protests. So um, I think it's it's almost impossible, or it is impossible, to predict what might trigger uh, a protest wave. Right? It might be an election. Right? That very often happens. But it might also be you know some other event. I don't know, political assassination, or you know some especially blatant case of environmental damage. Uh, or you know something else that that gets people really riled up. Um, what I think we need to be really wary of is a kind of um, you know good versus bad or kind of Armageddon style framework for understanding protest. Because I think that a lot of the reporting on protest and even some of the, the social science writing um, basically assumes that it's kind of a battle of good versus evil, and all that matters is the relative strength of opposition versus regime, right? And the, the whole story of protest is then written as a story where, um, you know, the opposition uh, progressively gets stronger and, you know, learns from its past mistakes and manages to, um, you know, challenge the regime in new ways in kind of, you know, a cycle of contentious politics, right? Um, whereas I think that it's important to remember that protest will never go away, no matter who's in charge or you know how the political system might change there will always be things to protest about and there will always be protests right so from the point of view of studying not what the outcomes of the protest might be for the political system but you know in terms of the protest itself um, i think that there are certain issues that will simply stay with us even in the as of yet relatively unlikely event of you know radical regime change in russia Right. So the issue of, I don't know, environmental damage, the issue of corruption uh, and, you know, all these other things, the issue of social social justice, which I will I think will become much more important in, in Russia, kind of complex of labor relations. All these are things that concern people's you know very kind of tangible everyday interests and they will stay us as protest causes no matter what happens in terms of, of you know elections etc so i think that a lot of a lot will depend on whether opposition activists will be able to marshal some of that local protest energy for their own purposes and conversely whether local activists will um, kind of evolve to you know work more closely 
with the existing opposition movement. So whether, you know, there will be kind of synergies either top down or from the bottom up. Um, and that, I think, will determine the level of cohesion. So we, I think we've seen in, in some successful protest movements, whatever that means, in, in a lot of countries, that they were successful in the short term to the extent that they managed to bundle these specific local issues with some sort of general concern about you know, the political system, a corrupt anti-democratic elite, etc., uh, etc. Et and you know, what, what I think remains to be seen in Russia is the extent to which a figure like, for example, Navalny um, will be able to do that. And I, don't, I can't really you know, predict it. The, the, the only thing I'm seeing is that uh, Navalny has established himself as you know, a much more serious political force and a much more serious political organizer uh, countrywide than I would have expected based on his you know, relatively lackluster performance in, in the regions in 2012. Now, you know, uh, what that will lead to, um, once again, I, I wouldn't be able to predict. That was Misha Gabovitz, a member of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam, Germany, and a sociologist and contemporary historian specializing in the study of protest and social movements in Russia, as well as Soviet war memorials. He's the author of Protest in Putin's Russia, published by Politi. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.